So somebody wanted to know how to set the engine mounting hole or hole bottom of question mark. Basically, what we're talking about here is how to mount an outboard engine bracket. Now, there's a lot of variables to this. And um, biggest thing is going to be what brackets you have and then the transom that you have. It, there's a lot of different manufacturers out there, but a lot of it goes mainly to the dead rise of the transom. So your transom is either going to be, you know, a five degree dead rise, 10 degree, 12. You know, there's a certain degree of an angle that you have with your transom. So that dead rise of that transom or the angle of the transom is going to play a very crucial part in this because based on this is going to determine the bracket that you have. If you buy a used bracket that is not fit for that angle, then the angle of your bracket is then going to be built into that piece right there. You know, if you've got a very large angle on the transom and you get an angle also with the bracket, it's going to put the bracket down like this, which is going to put your engine down into the water, which could potentially be a problem. Easiest way to do it is getting something like this, depending on um, the manufacturer of the bracket that you get. So this one is a, um, it's just a template. So like you can see here, I mean, it's going to be hard to see, but this is for a stainless Marine. And it's basically the template. It gives you the different dimensions of how to measure it. And then um, we're going to talk about other things like the engine in just a second, but it tells you where exactly to measure based on the dead rise of the boat and the angle of the um, back of the boat. And then also whether you've got twins or you've got a single or whatever. And it actually tells you exactly how, you know, angle of the bracket that you have, it's going to tell you exactly how to mount it. Now, something else when we're talking about, you know, used stuff. So this is from Stainless Marine. You can call Stainless. They have those. You can get it from them. If you've got an Armstrong bracket, you can call Armstrong. They've all got that same type of template with the instructions on how to get the height correct. If you're putting used stuff together, that's a completely different story because you might have to play with that. Like we we're saying, if you've got a large angle on the transom and your bracket doesn't have the right angle, because really, if you've got a large angle on the transom, you need to have an up angle from the bracket so that way it'll bring the engine up out of the water otherwise it's going to be down the water and you will need to mount that bracket higher than you normally would because of the angles matching up with the transom and the bracket otherwise you could have a problem and then again on the used stuff depending on your engine. So do you have a 25 inch shaft engine? Do you have a 30 inch shaft engine? Those are all gonna play crucial parts because if you've got a 30 inch transom or a 30 inch drive shaft engine, then you're going to need that to be higher out of the water than if you've got a 25. So these all, all three of those things play a part in where exactly you want to mount that bracket. Dead rise of the boat, angle of the transom, angle of the bracket, and the length of the drive shaft of your outboard. And then, you know, if you have twins or anything more than that. But I would suggest if you're trying to do something like that, that you just call the brand, like either Armstrong or Stainless Marine, and then get the template that they have, and it comes with the instructions, and then you can find the angle of your transom, which is pretty easy. You just basically take a, a right angle and, um, you know, put that onto the, the boat, onto the boat. And then based on the distance it is, 
It'll tell you exactly what degree you have. And then most brackets somewhere, I think it's usually close to where the anode is. So on the inside, when you look in the bracket, where the anode bolts in, somewhere around there, I want to say that, um, like I know stainless does, they have a stamp in there, and that stamp is like a code to tell you what degree that bracket is. So that's, you know, going to be here's the top of the bracket, and then here's the angle of it. It's going to tell you what exactly that is. So it's very important to make sure that you look at those two things before you go mount that thing up. And then again, it's a lot easier if you have the template because you can mock it up on there, drill some pilot holes, check everything out before you just go sending, you know, 15 holes that are a half inch big through the transom into the boat and find out that, oh no, it needs to be two inches higher. That's going to be a big problem that you don't want to have to deal with if you would have just done the check in the first place. And again, if you're putting used stuff together, like a used bracket on a used boat with a used engine, and you have the thir- you have a 30-inch shaft engine, and you need to bring it up, be thinking about later on, you know, how long is this outboard going to last? Because if it's only going to last, you know, a year or two, you might not want to um, even go through with mounting everything for that engine. It might be better for you to just sell that engine and find a 25 or something that is going to match that package better uh, based on what you've got with all the used stuff. So take into account all of that and the later on because buying a 30 inch or a 35 inch or something like that is going to be different than finding a 25. There's a lot more 25 inch shaft outboards out there for sale than there are 30s and 35s when you're buying used. Uh, When you're buying new, obviously uh, you can buy whatever you want to buy. 30 is going to be 30, 35 is going to be more expensive because it's got more metal um, and it's a it's a bigger package, so it's usually a few hundred dollars, if not a thousand dollars more for like a 30 inch compared to a 25 or a 25 compared to a 20. And then also something else to think about as far as putting all that stuff together and making sure that the, the height is right based on your template and the instructions from the you know manufacturer of your bracket and the angle of your transom is that engine's how close is it to the waterline? Because based on how far back the engine is, you can come up because the water's going to, if this is the bottom of the boat, water's going to come off and then it's going to rise. There's two different things people say is a rule of thumb. Some say for every foot, you get a half inch of up. Some will say every foot, you get an inch up. Which one's right? I'm not 100%. You can use either one. They're so close that it probably doesn't matter. But if you're, say, two feet off the back of the boat, which is most platform brackets are 24 inches um, far deep, I guess you would say. So you would get an, either an inch or two inches up of that mounting height because that's where the water is going to come up and hit the lower unit of the outboard. Now, all of them have basically a static water line marking on the back because there is an above the water exhaust for the outboard. And it's crucial to be thinking about this because if you take this bracket and you want to put like a 20 or, you know, some 25s even, and you get that thing buried down deep enough in the water, when you come off plane, usually there's a wall of water that comes back 
uh, whenever it you know comes off plane, that water comes over, and if you have the engine mounted so low that it's just smashing into the back of the cowling, that's not going to be a good thing, and it could be a problem with swamping the engine. So maybe you do need a 25 or you do need a 30 inch. That is kind of something to think about as a 30 inch is going to have that static water line that above the, above the water exhaust higher from the water line than a 25 or a 20. So every one, you know, is five inches. So a 20 to a 30, that's a 10 inch gap. So be thinking about that based on again, angle of the angle of the transom and the angle of the bracket that you have working diligently is said why not a scott at at water that's talking about older outboards like i i really do not have much experience with any of that like a scott scott at water um, i'm pretty sure that's an air-cooled engine and it's a vintage engine from like the 50s so i really don't know that much about those kinds of outboards i mean i've got some experience with like a ted williams and stuff like that but uh, some sears robux and some chrysler's but some of that other vintage outboard stuff, I don't have that much experience with. So whether that is a reliable, unreliable engine, I don't really know. I mean, that's kind of what the discussion was about was being unreliable versus reliable. And personally, I would say anything that's 40 years old, I would consider unreliable because it's a vintage engine. Even though it may be a reliable engine for what you're using it for, like you're putting, you know, one of these small outboards, these two strokes on a, a John boat, on a canoe or something like that, where you're putting around a lake, 100% reliable because it starts up and does what you want it to do. But by and large, when I say things like that, I'm talking about stuff that you're going to use every other day and be getting you back and forth. Like a lot of these little engines, people are using them on their dinghies. That's their daily commuter from a sailboat. Like if you live on a sailboat and you work in town, then you use your little engine as, you know, that's your commuter. So I'm looking at it from that point of view, not the point of view of on four or five weekends out of the year, you fire up this 45 year old outboard and go put around the pond. That's, you know, not really what I'm saying as far as it not being reliable, but I don't have that much experience with those older engines. A lot of them, once you get running, if you can keep them running, then, um, they are reliable as far as like doing that kind of stuff with them. But if you're wanting to put them on a bigger Lake and then go a distance, or if you need that to get from your sailboat to land to go to a job or something like that i wouldn't consider something like that reliable i think that is a vintage piece it's an antique and it should be you know restored and and you know cleaned up to where it's like people look at it and be like oh wow that is really really cool for a vintage antique outboard that's still running and someone's still using it i'm all on board with you there Hot shots. A year ago, I bought a boat with a 2003 HPDI. I thought since been an auto mechanic for 30 years and love working on boats for a hobby, I figured I could take care of the HPDI and enjoy a very efficient two-stroke. I checked all the known problem items on the engine, mystery filters, VST pump, and strainer oil system, made sure the engine had all the updates. It was clear the engine had just been serviced before I got it with all mystery filters and VST screen replaced. Well, I ran two successful trips about eight hours, and on the third trip out, the engine blew up. Piston number one grenaded and piston two was somewhat damaged. I did a very detailed analysis during the teardown, checked the engine log, and did not find any cause 
for the damage by the pistons. It looked like it either overheated, which the, the log did not show. Neither the engine temp gauge or detonation for unknown reason. Engine had 460-ish hours, so no, I will not ever run a 225-300 HPI ever again. I believe the disease they have is no knock sensor and no O2 sensor, and therefore they inherently run lean. That is unfortunate. The only two things that I can think of uh, are going to be maybe an oiling problem or an injector problem that, you know, made it run lean. So being on the one and two top two cylinders, it does use fuel to cool it. And it does need that oil lubrication from, you know, that oil pump that has all those lines. A lot of times that the clips where those oil lines are and the fittings that are there can rust and corrode and clog up and that'd be a problem. And so maybe it wasn't getting oil, but I think I saw a later comment where he said that it was not the oil and they were oiling properly. No problem there. So an, in, an injector, either the injector could have been messed up where it wasn't giving the right spray pattern or the right fuel, or there was a problem with the pump and you were not getting the right fuel pressure. Maybe there was not getting enough pressure at the top or you had a leaky injector at the bottom, which was getting all the fuel, dumping it into the lower cylinders. Um, kind of hard to say what it could have been. I know you went through it quite a bit. So that's the first thing I would think of is an injector not giving enough fuel. And then, like you said, it's getting hot and detonating because it's not getting that fuel in there. And that's usually it. Yeah, no O2 sensor, no knock sensor. I mean, the OX66 has had O2 sensors. I want to say some of the HPDIs had an O2, but I'm not 100% on that one. Kind of hard to all the different years that they made it. But no, I don't think that one did. So yeah, that's probably their problem in running lean. So they did, I mean, they were super fuel efficient, but that fuel efficiency came with the running lean issue. And yeah, that's why a lot of them grenaded. So I do feel for you. That's unfortunate to have to learn the hard way about those HPDIs that, you know, some people can get them to run good. And then other ones, they just blow up for, you know, whatever reason. Jafar, what is your review on the Express brand? So Express brand, like I really don't have any experience with an Express brand. So I know it's a bass boat and I really don't have that much experience in the bass boating world either. I mean, you know, I've worked on some Lowe's, some Lunds, Rangers. I haven't really done much with Triton or um, Nitro or any of these other. I've done quite a bit with Skeeters, but my but my bass boat experience is very limited. I normally have not been in a bass world, being in South Florida and now in in Central Florida. Um, it's all offshore stuff for for me, so I don't really know much about Express. I mean, I I haven't heard anything bad. I don't know too much about them, so can't really give you any solid information about them. Philbert, love the videos. Thank you, sir. I have a question about a similar topic. Are there any of these budget brand boats that you think are ex actually putting out a good product? Honestly, it all depends on the brand. I think that it's hard to call out one brand from another brand and say, oh, this brand's really good or this brand's really not. Because if it's really not, I'm just not going to say anything about it just because I can't be straight up bashing brands all the time and be like, well, that is a very bad boat, very poor brand. Unless it's like a known issue where it's like, um, 
you know, obviously this boat brand has a problem and they should fix it. And, you know, otherwise I'm just going to get cease and desist all the time about, oh, you can't be bashing our brand. So can't really do that. But I think that the production line boat, which is what you're talking about, you're talking about, you know, Mako's and Crown Lines and all these other like production line budget boats that come in with a an introductory price where you can get into boating of like, you know, you're getting a boat, you're getting a trailer, say it's a 21 foot boat, um, a good engine package, decent electronics, and you're able to get on the water for like a reasonable price being anywhere from, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, under a hundred grand, I would say. So the difference between that and like top line boats that cost three, four, five hundred thousand dollars for the same size, you know, 21 to 26 foot boat, then they do serve a good purpose. Um, I think that by and large, most of the ones that are out there now, a lot of the like really dumpy brands have really, there's not too many of them left. Most of them have closed up shop because they made such a poor product. But by and large, most of the production line bro- boats that are out there that you get from Bass Pro and these other major um, companies that are pumping out boats they're not too bad. I'll probably have to circle back to this and do a little bit of research to give you some names of some brands. Cause I think that's what you're looking for. You're looking for some names of some brands. And as just off the top of my head, I can't think of any. So what I'll do is I'll just throw this question onto, you know, next week or the following week. So that way I can get some brands together and say, Oh, you know, these are good. These are, you know, to give you a list of the, maybe the top 10 decent budget brand boats that I could come up with. Hi, mate. How long will a an impeller last? How often should you replace it? So an impeller generally, most, most companies, it's either every 300 hours or every two years. That's basically what most brands out there, that's their intervals. Some will say three years, but it's usually two years, 300 hours generally. And, you know, that's kind of a matter of opinion because there's people up north that have been running the same impeller for over a decade. So the actual impeller breaking down and and not being usable, the issue is that it's a rubber component. And over time between heat and cooling, the rubber gets hard. It loses its um, flex and it will crack. It will not produce the same amount of flow for the water that you need it to produce. And so that's kind of the problem with it. But again, there's people that are running Evinrude's from 15, 20 years ago that have never changed the impeller and the lower unit's going to come off tomorrow because it's so oily that everything will come apart. Fresh water use down in the salt water. That is a very bad idea. You do not want to do that. You want to be able to take that lower unit off at least once every two years because if not, then you're going to have a problem getting that lower unit off. So that is another reason. And if you take the lower unit off, a $20 impeller is, you might as well just replace it. If you're going to go through the trouble to drop the lower, go ahead and put the $20 impeller in there and call it a day. So I would say to go with the every two years or 300 hours, that would be what I would say to change your impellers because you want to grease the bolts. You want to drop the lower. You want to be able to inspect stuff and see if you have a potential problem in the future based on what you find when you drop the lower unit and look at everything. I mean, um, 
that's kind of part of changing it. Not necessarily that the impeller just wears out, even though it the rubber eventually does wear out, but that's also another side of why you want to change it within those intervals. RW landscaping, what about yellow fins? So talking about good boats, unreliable versus reliable, boats that hold their value. Um, yellow fins, they do hold their value. I'm not the biggest yellow fin fan. I have worked on tons of yellow fins. And for me, I'm not the biggest fan. So I'm going to kind of leave it at that. They are they do hold their value. They do ride nice uh, when they're new and over time. I do know that they just got sold to, you know, not even just, just, it was actually a little while ago they were sold. So it's not, you know, a, a small brain. I think the same people that own Invincible bought them as well. I think they're going to hold their value. They have a good ride. The layout is very nice with the way they set them up with, you know, with the, the setup for fishing, the lower gunnels, um, the flare is a nice flare on them. So I would say it's a nice boat. But again, I've worked on a lot of them and I'm not the biggest fan of them. So I'm probably not the right person to ask that. Uh, that's just my opinion of them. And, you know, like I said, it, it's still a nice boat. Doesn't make it a bad boat. Joey the Dime. It amazes me that boat salvages go far beyond auto salvage and recycling. Fiberglass can and should be recycled as this is the most environmentally friendly option. Fiberglass hulls can be recycled by breaking the hull down and melting it to be used again in producing new products. Shredding the fiberglass is broken down into smaller pieces, often through shredding or grinding. Washing the shredded fiberglass is washed to remove any contaminants or impurities. Melting the clean fiberglass is melted down in a furnace or kiln. Molding. The melted fiberglass is poured into a mold and allowed to cool and harden. Finishing the molded fiberglass is trimmed and finished as needed. Common uses insulation. Recycled fiberglass can be used to make new insulation products, automotive parts. Recycled fiberglass can make various automotive parts, including body panels, spoilers, and hoods. Boat building. Recycled fiberglass can be used to repair existing boats. Construction. Recycled fiberglass can make structural elements such as beams, columns, and panels. Industrial products, recycled fiberglass can make various industrial products, including tanks, pipes, and ducts. Yeah, I, I am surprised that there isn't more recycling done with boats. A lot of them do just go and rot in a, a yard. There's probably an issue with the amount of people that know how to recycle and the, and the facilities that can actually recycle it. Because you do have a lot of contaminants within a boat between the fuel tanks, the oiling systems, um, all of the resins, the metals, the the T-tops, all the cushions, and all the other electronics. Like, there's a lot of stuff in them to strip them down. So, I don't really know of that many places that are recycling them. But you're right. I mean, fiberglass could be used for fiberglass insulation and other stuff like that and be maybe recycled a little bit better. I don't know. I personally don't know of any companies that do that. If you do, you know, let us know. We'll definitely tell people about it because... It is something like you can see it with the salvage yards that we've went and, and looked at. I mean, they are. The, the holes just pile up and they'll never get used. I mean, you know, it would be one in a thousand of the boats that land there ever, ever get pulled out and used functionally ever again. I mean, most of them are just going to be there and that's it. So I don't really know much of 
the recycling aspect of older boats and stuff like that. I mean, it sounds like if, the, if that's the process, then 100% there should be a better way. It's just kind of like the same with lithium batteries and stuff like that. A lot of the batteries in the recycling facilities, they recycle all that material in order to make more batteries and stuff like that. So it does sound like a lucrative option and something that does need to get done i don't know of any companies that do that sounds like it could be an opportunity for somebody but appreciate it eric i have four 600 horsepower mercury engines and i am amazed there is no garmin autopilot integration how is this not common knowledge i mean it's kind of a little bit different because the 600 is its own like thing like it is its own package like it's super proprietary to mercury i mean it's a hundred thousand dollar outboard basically so it is all inclusive it's got a pod drive the steering pump is built onto the uh, engine and so it the way it functions is completely different than the way uh, normal outboards function most of them have a steering cylinder on the front and then a steering pump in the boat and it's run on hydraulics or it's run on hydraulics or electro hydraulics being an electronic hydraulic pump that's helping assist but still sort of hydraulic as soon as we get into talking about fully electric systems like electronic you know steering cylinders and electronic helms a lot of that stuff becomes super proprietary to the brand and um i mean mercury has a deal with simrad because Brunswick owns Mercury and they own Navico. So, you know, it's kind of like a parent corporation umbrella type deal. And then Yamaha has a deal with Garmin. And so that's why those two work so well together. Even though Garmin is such is probably the most user-friendly electronic out there. That's why a lot of people use Garmin because it is so user-friendly and some of the other brands have lacked in that department of getting their user ability up as far as their products, even though, you know, Garmin's not, I wouldn't say that Garmin is the be-all, best-all of the electronics world, but it's the most user-friendly and pretty much anybody can use it. So, the fact that they don't really talk that well with Mercury's and then even more when you get into bigger stuff where you're using joysticks and stuff like that. So in the old days, an autopilot was just straight up controlling the steering. So you've got a GPS unit in the boat somewhere and then that GPS unit uses a hub that then controls the steering pump to go either left or right and hold a course. Whereas now most of the stuff is digital. So you've got digital steering you got digital shift and digital throttle and all this other stuff and so it becomes a little more complex and now you've got brands that don't really talk to each other so take it to yamaha to talk to a mercury and you know a suzuki to talk to a honda that kind of thing that's really the problem being a software issue and that everything is become so electronic that it's its own own deal not 100 it you know it's just unfortunate i guess it now that i think about it i guess no you wouldn't be able to do that um, because of the way it is and the way it's steered. The engine itself is controlling everything based on what it gets from the helm because it is this fully electronic steering system on a pod drive. So to get another third party to be able to control that is um, everything's so new that that just doesn't exist yet. The other thing is that the engine, in order to do autopilot, would only need a GPS. So as long as it's got GPS, then it's already going to have autopilot. And then 
I don't know as far as so in order for a Mercury to talk to Garmin, it needs a a SmartCraft gateway. Most of them, like if it's using a SimRat or a LowRant, something like that, they have a VesselView link that allows it to talk to that through NEMA 2000. But when you talk about other third-party electronics, Bing, Raymarine, Furuno, um, Garmin, Hummingbird, you know, not Hummingbird, but those three mainly, it needs that gateway to talk to it. So whether or not you can get the controls for that onto the Garmin, I'm not 100% whether that is, you know, possible or not possible or possible in the future, not really sure. So that's kind of just a breakdown of the differences between these different brands and the deals that they have between each other and getting certain products to talk to other products it's more of a software issue than it is necessarily a, um, you know, functionality issue. It's just an integration and not common knowledge is because it's everything's so new. And that's unfortunate that it is like that. And it's getting even worse because uh, you've got other companies out there like Seastar and Optimus, which is a Dometic product, which Yamaha bought them. So now that is becoming proprietary. So that stuff no longer will work together like the Optimus system that people would use for Mercury, like with the joystick and stuff, those those networks are no longer going to talk to each other. So that separation is going to even get farther apart because of the way the new next-gen DTS for Mercury operates, the way it talks to each other with the computers and the helm and the control boxes and the way it talks to the engines compared to the way that Seastar was tying into the network, the, the way it communicates is different now and so i would say that that integration is going to go away and that's kind of the unfortunate deal of trying to integrate multiple different products with different packages unfortunately yeah you're going to run into that where a lot of people are going to be solely based on simrad or they want to use furuno and they want to have a yamaha engines and the communication between them is not going to line up the greatest you are going to have some integration obstacles to overcome there. So that's kind of a pickle that we're going to see based on what people are used to and what they want and, and trying to put all this different stuff into one boat to make one um, super connected package as far as the boat goes. So Alib90, Craigslist, older folks who don't use Facebook list on there. I've gotten lucky on there talking about where you can find a cheaper boat to buy or maybe get a deal on a boat um yeah craigslist for sure i don't know if i say it's just older folks who don't use facebook but um you know i'm i'm 35 i'm not that old so i mean i i was 18 when facebook came out so i don't even use facebook anymore other than marketplace so craigslist older folks who don't use facebook um, yeah, you can get, you can get lucky on Craigslist and find some deals on there for sure. So that's kind of one of the top places that I look when I'm starting to look around for a boat. I'm looking at, depending on the project that I'm trying to do, I'll look around and see if I can find one, you know, at a local dealer or in someone's yard or something like that. One that's been sitting. I like them that after they've been sitting, because like you can say, you can get lucky and find a deal. And then also Craigslist marketplace, 
it all depends on what exactly you're looking for. Also, another one is, um, you know, going somewhere where it's colder. So like, you know, somewhere that has a season, sometimes you can find a deal whenever you go to like, you know, if I go to New York or something like that and try and find a boat in the off season when it's winter time, there's probably a lot of stuff like that where you can find a deal based on it being a seasonality aspect and people put their boats away, things happen and they get rid of boats for cheap because it's the winter time and no one else is buying it and they need to sell it. So they, you can find a deal like that, but most of the time, yeah, Craigslist, Facebook, stuff like that. You can find a cheap deal, get a good deal on a boat and we'll cut it, go ahead and cut it off there for this week. If you want to talk about something, drop it in the comments below, email us at askbab at morningandboating.com. Also, we have a boaters program where we do uh, weekly live streams. We've got a podcast, hundreds of courses. If you want to check that out, go to bornagainboating.com, learn more about your boat, and we will see you next week.